0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Tar Heel Prescription, a student run podcast here at the UNC School of Medicine. My name is Peter, and today we are back with another episode of the specialty series. Today we'll be talking about my personal favorite, physical medicine and rehabilitation, or PMNR for short. Personally, from the day I learned about PMNR, I've been set on it and super excited to learn more. As I enter my clinical training, this is why I'm really excited to finally be highlighting this underrated specialty with a guest co-host and my co-president for the sports medicine and PM&R interest group here at UNC, Bina. My friend, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, everybody. My name is Bina Amin. I'm a second year medical student here at UNC and like Peter said, a fellow PM&R enthusiast. I am so excited to be here today and introduce our very special guest, Dr. Lee Shuping. Dr. Shuping, thank you so much for being here. If you would, please tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do here at UNC.
2: Sure, thanks so much for having me. My name is Lee Shuping. I'm an attending physician here at UNC in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I also teach in the Department of Neurology, I guess I wear many, many hats. I serve as our medical student advisor. Uh, I formally, I also serve informally, uh, nationally and regionally for the American Association of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, as well as the Academic Association of Physiatry as a formal mentor. Here at UNC, I'm the medical director of the concussion clinic, do brain injury rehab. I also attend inpatient We'll, we can get into all these things later as as what you can do or choose to do in PMNR. Personally, I went to the University of North Carolina as an undergraduate back in the olden days when Dean Smith was still the coach. Um, I'm not going to tell you my real age, but I will say that I got dunked on by Vince Carter in a pickup game once. Claim to fame. Um, many, many better basketball players than me have been dunked on by Vince Carter, so I'm okay with t- telling that story. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I went to undergraduate. I actually went to uh, East Carolina University for a master's degree in physical therapy and worked as a physical therapist for several years, which is actually how I learned about physiatry as a specialty or physical medicine and rehab. When I went back to medical school, I think I was the only MS-1 that even knew what it was. We didn't even have an interest group here at UNC. It had kind of fallen by the wayside. So as an MS-1, I was the PM&R interest group president. And was the president for the next three years until we could drum up enough support for somebody to take it from me during my clinical years. I did my residency at the University of Virginia, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about residency and what it entails later. But four years later, came back to UNC, where they graciously welcomed me back as an attending, and I've been here ever since. And you recently got certified in traumatic brain injury, is that that correct? That is correct. And we'll talk a little bit more about the certifications you can get. I'm currently uh, triple board certified in physical medicine and rehab, brain injury medicine, as well as electrodiagnostic medicine. Well, that sounds exciting. And it's a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Xu Feng. To dive right in,
0: uh, could you tell us a little more about your personal journey into PM&R and how did you find yourself
2: here and what experiences shaped your decision? Sure. Um, as several medical students may have lived through, I had a bit of a wandering road to medical school. I didn't start medical school until I was 29 years old. I worked as a physical therapist for several years. Um, coming out of undergraduate, I knew that medicine was what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get to it. Um, I applied to medical school several times was waitlisted every year forever, ended up getting into a physical therapy degree program that technically was harder to get into statistically than medical school at that time. Um, And absolutely loved everything about learning about anatomy, the human body, form and function. And I think as I started working, my first job was at um, Warm Springs, Georgia, the Roosevelt Rehabilitation Institute, which was actually the first dedicated rehabilitation hospital in the United States. So I, got, I love the history of this too. If we want to do another podcast about the history of physiatry, I could probably talk for another hour on it. Uh, it was just interesting stuff to me. And that's where I f- met my first physiatrist. And Dr. Isidro talked to me about what was going on, how he went through medicine, what some of his things were. And it really did resonate with me as something that I could use my physical therapy education, my interest in um, actually knowing my patients, talking to them, learning about them as people, what they needed to be more functional human beings and treating them in that way. So whenever I came to medical school, finally got in, it was, it was a pretty straight road from there. I pondered neurology and orthopedic surgery for the exact same reasons that I love PM&R and made the right choices.
1: We're so happy you ended up here. Broadly speaking, give us an overview of the field of PM&R and what does a day in the life of a PM&R specialist look like?
2: So that's a wonderful question and one that my mom has asked me a thousand times and I cannot give her a good answer. Because once you get into PM&R, there are so many little forks in the road you can take to treat different patient populations that every day can be absolutely different. I can give you an example of my week and then an example of another attendings week and they'll look completely different. Um, Right now I'm attending on inpatient service. I- along with a PGY-4 resident round on between 8 and 12 patients every morning. This is inpatient rehab. They've already done an acute hospitalization. My particular team, we focus on polytrauma, multiple fractures, a little bit of brain injury, um, amputee medicine, and basically debility, things like that. We'll, We'll always see folks with strokes and things like that, but we have a dedicated stroke service, a dedicated spinal cord injury service, and now a dedicated brain injury service as well. Today, I attended there. I also have a contract with occupational medicine here at the university where I serve as associate medical director for that as well. So the University of North Carolina employs about 40,000 people. And if someone does get injured on the job or needs to travel to a foreign country, they'll come to that clinic and get their immunizations. That's just another random way that physiatry can be integrated into a a population. Uh, This afternoon, I'm doing electrodiagnostics or EMGs, nerve conduction tests, looking for uh, peripheral causes of nerve abnormality or damage or pain. And I think that's it today. Uh, (laughs) That's enough for today. That's that's enough for today. Um, Other days, I do have outpatient clinic where about 60 to 70% of my patients are traumatic brain injury, primarily concussion. And almost exclusively non-sports-based. So car accidents, traumas, things like that. Now, I compare that to, say, Dr. Christine Cleveland, who's our spinal cord injury specialist. She's in the inpatient hospital every day. She has clinic three days a week, one day a week with the, with the spinal cord injury service, the second day with a spinal cord injury service, plus a neurology or neurosurgery resident. And then another day in the transverse myelitis clinic with neurology. It can be whatever you want it to be. We have folks that don't do any inpatient at all. We have folks that do interventional spine, doing things like injections, um, axial, uh, epidural injections, things like that. Pretty much anything that you can imagine a person would go to a doctor and complain about from a pain standpoint or from a function standpoint or a weakness standpoint can be addressed with physical medicine.
1: And kind of going off of that note, um, people often equate PM&R to physical therapy. Um, And I know you had some uh, experience there as well. Uh, What is the best way to explain the differences between these two related, yet completely different specialties?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I get the question a couple of times a year. So are you just a doctor in physical therapy? I'm like, me, yes, because I do have a degree in physical therapy, but most PM&R docs, absolutely not. Oh, we learn completely different things. The therapists are specialists in biomechanics. They are specialists in body movement and training. Physiatrists are physicians first. We manage things medically. We can and should be working with the physical therapist to come up with the best treatment plan. Um, I have found that I have a really nice working relationship with my physical therapist that I refer to just because I know what they're doing. A bit more. And that's something I do encourage our residents and even medical students when they rotate with us to go hang out with the PTs and the OTs and the speech therapists and all of the other allied health specialists that can help with patients and learn what they do. PM&R is a team sport and um, it doesn't fit everyone's personality to be a team sport kind of person. And yeah, I, I think we'll go into more things later.
0: Well, before we delve into some broader questions about the field, we would like to talk in more detail about the path to becoming a board-certified PM&R specialist. Could you start by giving us a breakdown of the years between finishing medical school and becoming an attending? And what does residency entail in terms of training and work culture?
2: So how to get into residency? Um, It has changed quite a bit in the last 10 to 12 years. The secret, I don't want to say the secret's out, but the secret is emerging. Uh, Whenever I came out of medical school matching, the average step one score was a 205 to get into PM&R and 100% of US trained MD students. So not DOs, not reapplicants, nothing like that got in. Last year, the average was 228. So actually above the national average for step one. And we had somewhere over 650 applications for 500 spots. So there were quite a few folks that did not get in. One of the things you may have heard of is the number needed to match. Was how many places should you be interviewing to assure yourself the best chance of matching. Whenever I was interviewing, it was five. Last year it was 13. So it's getting, it's much more competitive than it used to be. In general, to have numbers like that, just for example, we just finished our interview season here. We had about 540 or 550 applications for four spots. Yeah. <laughs> so there has to be cuts there. I mean, I hate the numbers because I think we lose a lot of good applicants because their numbers just aren't there, but you have to be able to triage down some way. We had 50 interviews again for four spots. So we'll find out in, in March the same as everyone else, how we did and how they did, but it's it, it's getting much more competitive than it used to be.
0: Well, just a quick detour. I know you, you mentioned like step scores. How How is it going to be in the future when now
2: is pass fail? Yeah, this is the last class that we can actually see their scores. One thing that we can see is MCAT scores. And I hate to cast it back even that far, but there is some statistical and researched correlation with step scores and passing boards. And that is the point of residency is to produce board certified specialists. Um, again, as much as I hate it and as much as I hate teaching to tests and making sure people do the things, um, I think what's going to happen is that only step one is pass fail. I think a lot of programs are going to start requiring step two be done, which now they don't. Um, but I think individually, some programs are going to be saying, yeah, it's nice that you passed step one. We need to see your step two score just because they have to be able to, I don't know, it out yeah. triage the the applicant pool.
1: So let's break down the topic of residency programs and how interested students should go about choosing what programs they apply to. Can you tell us about the difference between categorical versus preliminary residency programs and the pros and cons of each? Also, are there differences in the experience at programs with smaller cohorts where there are only three to four residents versus bigger cohorts where there's more 10 to 15 residents?
2: So residency in PM&R, it is a four-year total residency. There are two ways to get those four years. One is called an advanced selective, and one is called an integrated pathway. In the integrated pathway, you do your intern year at the same place you do your residency, and you're actually part of your own department as an intern. In an advanced selection match, you do either a transitional year or a you can do a, an isolated internship wherever in the country you want to go, knowing that you match for your PGY one year separately than your PGY2 year at the same time. And it's the same as radiology, the same as dermatology. Um, some specialty surgeries are that way as well. So where you do a general surgical internship before moving to your specialty. So UNC is a categorical match, meaning that when you, once you hear your hours, As an intern, most of the time in those programs, they do their best to introduce you to the rest of the hospital. People you're going to be getting referrals from, types of evaluations you're going to need to be able to do. So our interns rotate through neurosurgery, neurology, emergency, internal medicine, the burn unit, pain management, they do a month with us, and it adds to 12, basically. But it's just getting to know as many of the departments that do inpatient referrals and outpatient referrals as we can. Just so, I mean, it's it's twofold. Number one, we, we have seen the patients in the more acute side and know what we're dealing with as we see the patients less acutely. And we actually know the people in the department. It's a lot easier to call one of the vascular surgery attendings if you know the vascular surgery attending. So about a third of residencies are categorical at this point most of the more traditional programs, the bigger programs are more advanced match. So places like Spalding in Boston and Kessler in New Jersey, those are considered advanced match. You do your internship somewhere else, or even if you do it at the same location, you're not part of the PM&R department until PGY2. It's a little confusing. So as far as different programs, one of the things that I really did was look for smaller programs. Knowing myself and the way I learn If I would have been part of a cohort of 10 to 12, I would have gotten lost. I very much have a little ADD happening and very much need somebody from the outside to keep me a little more corralled and give me a much more defined. And the smaller the program is, the more defined your experience is likely to be just because you don't have the room for elective time, the the moving parts for that. Some folks that are more independently driven, more research driven, things like that. They might really enjoy the bigger programs. The bigger programs tend to be the more established programs. Again, I've already mentioned Spalding, but also the Rehab Institute of Chicago or the Shirley Ryan um, Abilities Lab. They accept 10 to 12 per year. Um, UPMC at Pitt, 10 to 12 per year. And they're covering multiple hospital systems. So the residents do get a bit of a broader exposure. I had no interest in living in a big city at all. So not just the education side of it, the actual living side of it. Um, Just more personally about me, I started medical school with an infant. I had a six-month-old when I started my MS1 year. I had a three-month-old when I started my intern year. You can't do it worse than I did it. You're going to sleep more than I did, I promise. Um, But I definitely wanted a place where I didn't have to move twice. That's why I chose categorical. I definitely wanted a place that was family friendly. I knew my daughter would be going to kindergarten at this place. So I wanted to make sure that I was in a good neighborhood and all of those other things. But again, this is something you have to tailor to your own wants and desires. If you want to go live in New York for a year, but know you don't want to live there forever, maybe you want to do an advanced match. And just try to – there are dozens if not hundreds of preliminary years in New York or L.A. or wherever you want to go and live for a year. And know that you can go back to your specialty
0: at the end of that year. Is there a difference in, in terms of training-wise for like advanced
2: versus non-advanced programs? Technically, no. Um, the only requirements through the AB PM&R and through the ACGME, which accredits all the things, really looks at PGY 2, 3, and 4. Uh, so any education that you're going to be getting as an intern is bonus.
1: Tell us more about the PM&R Residency Program here at UNC. What is the general breakdown of training and what makes it a strong program?
2: We do have a small cohort here of four per year. That's actually increased. We were at three. So just in the last year, we've gone up to four. One of the few programs that's actually expanding. Good news to the Exa- 500 applicants. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. There's one more spot. So in general, all residents have to have the same training Nationwide, you get 12 months of inpatient therapy or inpatient rehab, somewhere between six and eight months of outpatient, somewhere between five and seven months of EMG or neuroconductive learning, and then a mixture of spine and amputees and pediatrics and things like that. That's what's mandated by ACGME. Now, different schools can spread those out in different ways. UNC, we tend to do about eight months of the inpatient. Are during your second residency year, your first year as a PM&R resident in the department. So we try to get the bulk of inpatient in because that really does set the stage for outpatient. Quite a few of the patients that you're seeing as an outpatient were also inpatient at some point. So as far as continuing that continuity of care from the acute side to the acute rehabilitation side to the outpatient side. The rest of the PGY2 year is split amongst outpatient clinics being, you know, whichever attendings happen to have a need for a resident, be that stroke or spinal cord, or we have a long COVID clinic. Dr. Barada runs, um, one of the first in in the country. As a PGY3, it gets a little funky because that's when you start with EMG. You start with some of the more specialty clinics, pediatrics. Generally outpatient, it really is a 40-hour work week. You're in at eight. You might leave at six if notes aren't done by the end of the day. In general, uh, you, you would ask about call. PGY2s, they're on call about 10 to 14 weeks per year. Um, And a call weekend is you come in, you round on the patients, you admit any new patients, and then call is from home. You don't spend the night in the hospital. You just have your phone on you. And if nursing has a question or if there's an emergency, then you come in but since we are freestanding in Hillsborough at this point, we have family medicine colleagues. If someone's going to leave the floor, it's not for a rehab reason. It's for an emergency medical reason. So we've worked out a system with the family medicine group where they're going to manage you know, acute coronary syndrome or new strokes or things like that and get people where they need to go. It makes sense. It doesn't always work that way. Um, it did not work that way at UVA. So we did all the medical management at UVA. So just. One of your other questions was about how do other other programs spread their clinic. At UVA, you did your entire inpatient as a PGY2. So you were an inpatient resident for 12 straight months, but then you were done. So pros and cons. (laughs) That's a long year, but then you're done. (laughs) I like how
0: PM&R, there's a lot of flexibility and it seems like you can really do a lot of different things and not just be set on just
2: one part of it. Right. Uh, or you you could, based on the flexibility that you were mentioning. It depends earlier. on what you want. Yeah. Um, you would ask about, you know, what's life like? You know, mornings start kind of early sometimes. We usually have to be in Hillsborough by eight. God forbid anyone just just coming off a surgical res- rotation. Yeah. You can, you can be envious. It's fine. Uh, the... um the latest, I think, any of our residents leave at this point is 6 or 6.30. So we are nowhere near the 80 hours, nowhere near it. We haven't had a single 80-hour work week violation at least in the last five years. And I don't think we get over 70 most of the time. Maybe some tough weekends or something like that, yeah. but that's not a thing. I mean, uh, overall, it sounds like- the perfect balance of I clinical think so. work. I mean, yeah. That's that's why I'm here. I'm trying to I'm trying to sell it to people, yeah. uh, but not too hard because we don't. We kind of like it being a little bit of a secret. Certainly good for us. it <laughs> yeah. In three years. <laughs> yeah. Years yeah. from now. Exactly. We'll keep it a secret for three more years, and once you guys are in, <laughs> yes. then we'll really start promoting. This
0: episode it. is going out in 2025. Not <laughs> not now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> thank you for breaking all of that down for us. Uh, could you briefly comment on the different pathways available to individuals after they finish their PM&R residency? And do you have any advice on finding
2: a job after residency, whether that's private versus academic? All right. Absolutely. So after residency, there there are many paths that a young physician can take. About half of folks graduating from departments at this point in time, and this is nationwide, do a fellowship. Uh, there are ACGME accredited fellowships in pain, stroke, brain injury medicine, spinal cord injury, and sports and palliative care. There are unaccredited specialties in electrodiagnostics, neuromuscular disorders, interventional spine, several things like that. Um, And it really just depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a proceduralist, where you're doing injections 20 hours a week and seeing patients 20 hours a week. Well, maybe a, an informal spine fellowship. If you want to treat people with chronic pain, you can do a chronic pain fellowship with anesthesia. It's, it really does depend on the patient population you want to see. Personally, I chose not to do a fellowship. Uh, just knowing my own attention span, I like to be the jack of all trades. If you can't tell by my clinical schedule, um, I like having that change, I like changing gear, gears in my head. Seeing a, an amputee patient and then seeing a myasthenia gravis patient and then seeing a traumatic brain injury patient and the different needs that each patient population has. I love that. And, I, and that's why I chose to do what I did. I was also lucky enough to grandfather into the traumatic brain injury boards the last year that they let people grandfather into it. So I don't have to do a fellowship and still I'm brain injury certified. Um, that's just fortuitous timing on that part. But it truly does, it, if you want more of an outpatient life, Then perhaps you do a fellowship. If you want more of an inpatient life, you don't necessarily need to unless you want to do spinal cord injury or brain injury or something like that. And um, in terms of finding a job after? (laughs) It truly does depend on what you want to do. I knew that I wanted to teach. I knew I wanted to be associated with a medical school and academic population. And that actually really did narrow down my search. Um, Me personally, I had a scholarship to medical school that said, uh, Thou shalt return to North Carolina after residency and work, and we'll pay stuff. And if not, you owe us everything plus 10%. So it was like a pretty easy $125,000 decision to make. And, you know, there are only three places in North Carolina that have academic departments. And so I interviewed at those three places, ended up taking the job here at UNC. There's plenty of room for private practice. There's we had a, a one of our graduates 2 years ago actually cold called something like 60 different orthopedic practices saying, "Hey, I know you don't have an advertisement for a partner, but this is what I can do for you." And ended up getting a job. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> uh is there like a a big difference in the
0: responsibilities between like private and academic?
2: Yeah. So private, it really does depend on your 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 clinical practice style. There are some physiatrists uh, here in the Triangle that work for Emerge Ortho and do some of their non-operational or people that just can't have surgery, help them with their chronic pain or help them with their diagnoses. The, the big thing with that is it's very much a, we use the term, eat what you kill model is basically you get paid based on how many patients you see. There are other places where it's salaried. Here at the, here I work for the state of North Carolina. Um, my job is salaried. I get the same paycheck whether I see 12 patients a day or whether I see 18 patients a day. Of course, we try to maximize everything and keep the department in the, in the black and all of those things, but it does build in a smaller caseload. It builds in time to teach residents and medical students and to work on research of, of your own device to work on academic programming. Thank you for that advice. And on an advising note, what should
0: medical students interested in pursuing PM&R do now to best prepare for applying to residency? And are there any specific attributes or experiences, for example, like research, extracurricular activities, or clinical hours that residency programs look for in potential candidates, and
2: especially here at UNC? There's so many different pathways. Traditionally, physical medicine and rehab is not such a research heavy specialty. I think that's changing. I think we're realizing the impact that we can have as physiatrists on the medical practice in, in general. So there isn't a new push for patient based as well as quality improvement style of research. Um, there are academic incentives here at UNC for being a productive researcher as well as being a productive clinician, things like that. As far as applying to residency, Research is not as important in PM&R yet. I think it's starting to change in the next couple of years. It's going to be one of those things. It would be very nice to have a poster presentation on your CV, something with your home department. Um, if you don't have a home department, if you're listening to this from another medical school, search out a close department and search out an advisor. There are Many, many ways to get your name out there and get even a case presentation, case study. There are enough interesting patients, especially in big academic centers that deserve a little bit of light shown on them so you can learn something as a, as a group. Um, what is really mo- much more important for me is not just volunteerism, but sustained volunteerism. I would much rather see an ERAS application where a person only volunteers at two things, but has hundreds of hours at those two things than someone that did a walk, roll and w- run one time and then did an afternoon at Habitat for Humanity one time and then fed at the Ronald McDonald House one time. If you work through you know, your church or whatever other community organization and every other Thursday you're at the Ronald McDonald House serving dinner, I see that as much more of a picture of your personality than you know, just spreading out into the wind. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: We often hear that every specialty has a personality type. How would you describe most of the individuals that decide to pursue a career in PM&R? Any particular traits that might point an undecided medical student in the direction of this specialty?
2: So if you ask that to other professions, to other specialties, you're going to get a picture of, you know, Surfer dudes that pull their six to eight hours a day, take Wednesdays off to go do whatever granola things they want to do, skateboarding, surfing, whatever. Um, We're physicians. You don't get into medical school through medical school and through residency without being a little bit type A. That being said we pride ourselves in having that team personality. We we play well in the sandbox. We want to learn from other specialties. We want other specialties to learn from us. And the main goal is getting our patient better. There's no ego in what we do. As the physician, as part of the medical team, you're inherently one of the leaders of the medical team. And so having a voice, having that kind of compassion, that kind of insight into what a patient needs to do to be independent and to go home, that's extremely important. But by the same token, being able to listen to your colleagues and trust their opinions as well, there are some other specialties that that's not as prized. Um, I will say, just bringing it all the way back to applications, if we are interviewing someone and we get the feeling that, you know what, they might not play so well in the sandbox, but their grades are stellar. We're going to take personality over grades every... We can teach anybody, but you can't teach soft skills. You, you can't... You can. It's it's difficult to teach soft skills if it's against someone's personality. If someone's a bit more abrasive or, or brusque, that's not to say they're going to be a bad physician or even a, a bad clinical physician. It's just not really the personality that you see a lot in physical medicine and rehab. And, and just talking
0: about for those who are undecided, I know that because... We don't really get to interact with PMR until fourth year. Um, what can students do during that fourth year to to really make the most of their learning and, and see if this is the specialty they want to go and also leave
2: a good impression on potential programs? No, absolutely. Um, so, two things on that. One, now that we're allegedly coming out of the pandemic, allegedly, we can actually have MS1s and 2s in clinic again. at at a very limited stage, very limited rate. We're just stepping back into it now. If anyone is interested, please reach out to me or to Thomas Petruska. His information's all over our website to set up, you know, how do we do that? We'll get you paired up with a physician colleague that may share similar interests and we can do that a bit. Now with your MS3 year, your clerkship year, that's really kind of, Laid out for you. There's not a lot of play in that. Uh, one of the things that UNC's department did, or UNC's medical school did several years ago was it took away your neurology rotation. Now you do have psychiatry, but neurology is an elective as well. If you feel like PMNR is something that you might want to pursue, I encourage doing a neurology elective because it is one of the electives you can do as an MS3. We see so many folks with neuromuscular and neurologic disease. Just exposure to that kind of patient will be a helpful thing. If it's something, the one thing that makes the scheduling a little bit easier is that you have an extended fourth year. So it used to be you started in July, which means you had July and August to figure out if you wanted to be a (laughs) physiatrist. So now that it starts back in April, we have the summer that you can do some of those rotations, get you in earlier before ERAS is even a thought. Well, it's always a thought, but you know what I mean. Before it's due, and you can start making those decisions you know, in May and June. Um, I usually tend to tell folks to reserve their fourth year if you want to do an interview elective. You don't have to in pm It's not like some of the more competitive surgical specialties where they expect you to do a, a visiting rotation, interview rotation. It, it's not that way in PM&R, and I don't see it going that way anytime soon. But it, it's one of those things that the more broadly you can expose yourself to the type of patients that we see, the better prepared you're going to be on the rotation.
0: So now, taking a deeper dive, uh, where do you see the future of PMR going? Are there any existing issues or challenges in the field that current and future generations of PMR specialists should
2: be aware of and aim to improve going forward? So PMR is growing. I want to say that the. Percentage of folks going into fellowship after has gone up from maybe 8 to 10% to over 50% in the last 25, 30 years. It's, It's a huge jump. And it's one of those things that a lot of other specialties are having troubles with is, you know, once you get folks that are so specialized, what is a general physiatrist? And I think, you know, I've had A place that shall not be named. Whenever I interviewed there for residency, I kind of told them I don't. I'm not that interested in doing a fellowship, and they blatantly told me that. Well, you have no future in academic physiatry then, and this was 2011, something like that. So it's one of those things that you can do whatever you want to. I don't. I'm not trying to be like the cheerleader soccer mom, but you can do whatever you want to in PM&R if you have the desire to do it. If you have you know the drive to do it. Um, we have um, a colleague at Rex who used to be over here, um, Angela Lipscomb-Hudson. She decided that she wanted to be more lifestyle and obesity management. And there is an unaccredited obesity management fellowship that she did. And she does medical management for people in the bariatric clinic at Rex now. That's what she wanted to do. She felt like healthy lifestyle was the way she was going to make her impact. That's a pretty cool path. Dr. Rauch, she knew that she liked doing PEDs, but she knew she didn't want to just do PEDs. So she opened up one of the first clinics for adults with cerebral palsy and transitioning to adulthood and cerebral palsy with Josh Alexander, who's our chair, sees tons of kids with cerebral palsy. Well, they turn 18. He's a pediatrician by training. So he's gotta he used to just keep seeing them until they were 26, 28, 30. And now Dr. Rauk will see them and help them transition into adulthood and and depending on their level of deficit, help them with job placement, with college, with mobility, with whatever they need. Um, it's just whatever you want to make of it. If you can find a patient population that you're passionate about, you can start treating that patient population. I think also the first time I heard about eSports. Um, so, Dr. Dr. Bartolo. <laughs> <laughs> so... We're still trying to figure out exactly how to maximize this. We're trying to get departmental um, Xbox S's or Xbox One's. Um, we do have a few. She has sponsorships with Microsoft and with uh, EA Sports mm-hmm. and things like that. And she's working with several um, neuro-optometrists. Like eSports is a is a multimillion-dollar, I think soon-to-be-billion-dollar industry Um some 14-year-old won $3 million playing Fortnite like three years ago. And these folks have repetitive joint injuries to their hands, to their back, to, for posture, things like that. So she's working with ergonomics. She's working with those kind of, it's, it's amazing. And she's got a, she'd have an interesting podcast for you, but she has a lot of great ideas of things to do, even all the way down to like controller design. How do you design a controller to allow a person to play longer? I mean, it sounds to me that really PMNR is you pick something
0: that you are passionate about and just make it happen. Absolutely.
1: So we know that ultrasound is a hot topic right now and has been historically important in the field. How is ultrasound used in the field today? And is ultrasound experience something you look for in a PMNR residency applicant?
2: So, experience itself, whether or not you have it as an applicant, I think it's a Positive if you have it, but it's not a negative if you don't. Um, does that make sense? Yes. I, I, yes. Um, If you've been exposed to it, it's kind of cool because residencies are required to teach ultrasound now. That happened about twelve years ago, where they actually made it part of the ACGME rules that people, that physician resident physicians in PM&R residencies have to learn about ultrasound. That's how important the ABPM&R and the APMR feel it's going to be to the future of our field. Um, that being said, when I was in residency, it was not required, but we did have two practitioners that loved it. So I got quite a bit of experience with it early on. And there's plenty of places to get experience with it. You're going to see some on sports rotations. Um, you'll see some in our clinics. Dr. Carvelis, Chris Carvelas, basically teaches at a national level how to do ultrasounds for musculoskeletal evaluation and uh, needle guidance. Dr. Bartolo, that part of her sports training was to do sideline assessments with an ultrasound, to do guided injections, things like that. So I don't do it as much as I used to. I used to be one of the teachers of it back when our program was a bit smaller. Um, When I started, I was the eighth attending physician hired. I think we have 23 now. So program's exploding a bit, a bit. And um, I've gladly turned over those reins to Dr. Carvelis and Dr. Bartolo because that's what they do. That's what they were specially trained to do. Uh, but I will say our residents get a huge exposure to ultrasound when they work with those attendings. At this point, we use ultrasound primarily for uh, procedural guidance, occasionally for diagnostics. If you just want to see, oh, is that nerve inflamed or is that uh, ligament does it look like you have some tendinitis if you're having some issues or you, if you're up in the air about what exactly is going on and you don't want to send somebody for a $3,000 MRI and you've got an ultrasound machine right there, you just throw it on. Um, and, and that's where I feel like it has its best utility is right there in the clinic because it is a two minute test. If you, you turn on the machine, you put it on and you say, okay, that looks good. You start take it off and yeah.
1: So on a more fun note, um, what is your favorite part of being a PM&R specialist? What keeps you anchored?
0: We want to say it's been fun so far. This is more of a personal Yeah, fair. Fair, fair.
2: fair, fair, fair.
1: Yeah, I was going to say on a fun note, but then I was like on a more fun note. On a note. more fun a- note. I love <laughs> it. Yeah.
2: No, I, I will say um, I love my patients. I love that I get to develop longer term relationships with some of these patients. I have patients that they're in their 20s and 30s and I'm going to see them until I retire. They just, you know, given their functional status, they have issues that we're going to be talking about and tweaking for the next 30 or 40 years. I love that pm is such a divergent specialty that there are many different pathways to do, to try, to get through. And just when you feel like it's going you know, spreading apart too much, you see where it comes back together. Um, I mentioned the post-COVID clinic, Dr. Barada and I are talking about doing research just because my post-COVID syndrome looks a lot like post-concussive syndrome. Is there a commonality? We don't know. No one knows. But that's where ideas come from, is you brainstorm with people that you like. Now, and I will say at UNC in particular, we're growing. We all have young families. We- See each other outside of clinic. We're not just work colleagues. Um, our Christmas party was last weekend. We were playing cornhole over at a park. Um, we try to get together a couple of times a year just to you know remember that we're people and not just doctors. Um, and I think that's one of the huge things that PMNR in general puts forward, but something that our our department and especially our chair Josh Alexander. I mean, I told you before, he's a pediatrician, so he is a just a wonderful human. Um, just a kind person, and made it his point when he became chair that he wanted the department to feel like a family. And you get that kind of uh, phraseology a lot, but it's very rare that yet they actually mean it the way you think they're going to mean it. So, And it's in Chapel Hill. Who doesn't love this place? I mean, you can be outside or you can be inside. I went to the basketball game last night. It was phenomenal.
0: Well, I think those are all the questions we have for you today. we would like to leave room now for you to share any other thoughts or advice that you might have about anything really, so clinical years, life, medicine.
2: Life. Oh, God. <laughs> I, was, I was prepared to talk about PM&R. I wasn't expected to talk about life. <laughs> um, PM&R tends to attract people that truly want to help people. So no matter what you put in your med school application, Of course, you want to help people. That's why you become doctors. Uh, But we want to help people not just with a disease. We want to help them with function. We want to make them more functional human beings, whatever that means to them. If that means I want to be able to brush my own teeth versus I want to be able to finish that 50-mile ultra marathon, it doesn't matter. That's what we do is, is try to make people able to achieve their goals and help them however they need to be helped.
1: What a wholesome field and a wholesome answer. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. Dr. Shuping, thank you so much for being here and sharing some of your time and wisdom with us today. To our listeners, that was Dr. Lee Shuping and a quick snapshot into physical medicine and rehabilitation. My name is Bina Amin
0: and my name is Peter. Be sure to follow the Tar Hill Prescription on Instagram to keep up with our speaker highlights and latest episodes, and if you know someone who needs to hear this episode, please share it with them. Thank you for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on the Tar Heel Prescription.